welcome to Getting to the Truth in This Art. I am your host, Rob Lee. And today's guest is a Baltimore painter and scientist. We have Sejong Cho. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for pulling up and being able to be a part of this. Um, and, and, and yeah, just thank you for doing the work that you're doing because it's you got some good stuff going there. You got some good stuff. Ah, so, I appreciate it. Totally. Um, so I gave the I gave my most thousand foot view or 10,000 foot view of what you do. I just said painter, scientist, but you, you get into it, describe your work, describe what it is that you do. Sure. Um, well, like you said, I paint and my primary medium is acrylic on media, uh, on, on, on canvas. And I recently had a solo show at the Catalyst Gallery in Midtown in Baltimore. And those work all featured um, acrylic paint on canvas. Um, some of them I actually experiment with painting on raw canvas with light box built mm -hmm. by Dave Zimmerman. Um, so that's that's what I do primarily. Um, and I really enjoy it. Acrylic is such a fun medium. It's so flexible and it dries so fast. So you have to work fast, but you know, it dries so you can paint over it if you mess up. So it's really great. But I, I recently I started um, working with watercolor and I'm really, really liking it. Watercolor is less forgiving than acrylic. Um, if you make a mistake, you have to live with it. Kind of like <laughs> life, right? Um, <laughs> But I also draw. I really love drawing. I make, you know, before I make a big painting, which is a big time commitment, I make a drawing of it and to get an idea of what the painting might look like. Sure. Um, but I have to remind myself that I cannot be constrained to the drawing because part of the fun is figuring out what to do next when you make paintings. But yeah, but I love drawing because it's a discipline. Anyone can draw really well if you put your time to it. So I really like that. But I'm also a scientist, like you mentioned. Um, I study science. Um, well, I, I study sediment and water and how okay. sediment and water move through the landscape and shape, shape the way, you know, mountains and rivers are, which is really cool. You know, I mean, early, early days, the, the field I study, which is called geomorphology, which is study of how landscape changes. Okay. You know, it was like mostly just like looking at the landscape and interpreting it. But now we have computers and satellite imagery. Um, so now the science has become more quantitative. Um, so I make computer simulation models to see where sediment comes from and how it moves through the landscape on hill slope and enters the river system. Because if you have too much sediment, it's a pollution. It causes, you know, turbidity, muddy river, you know, it's dark, the sunlight gets, cannot get into it. And then the entire aquatic ecosystem gets affected by lack of oxygen um, and, and sunlight. So yeah. we have like massive fish kill that's caused by that. So I, I make computer simulation models of it because then we can make predictions. You know, gotcha. prediction is, is really, you know, very difficult to do. I mean, we complain about weather forecasts because oftentimes they're wrong because yeah. it's very difficult to predict this kind of stuff. Right. So I make computer simulation models to predict where sediments moving through the landscape so that we can inform policymakers on where to put management actions to trap sediments so it doesn't get into the river too much. So I work in the intersection of science and policy. That's gotcha. what I do. Yeah. 
that that's uh like it's it's in a consulting kind of space or what have you that 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 having the having the background in science and having the background and showing that forecasting is enable enables one to be able to to consult and direct based on it and i think a lot of people don't understand like how forecasting and how like eh, this is what it could be lo looks like because I, I work within data at, in a university so hey can we do some predictive modeling sure also this could sway drastically so keep that in mm -hmm. mind and people just look at the charts or look at the numbers without the context and i think that intersection being able to speak on it and being able to know it's like the science says this <laughs> yeah yeah it's important yeah so, so if you if you would, um, and I'm going to skip ahead and, and move my questions around a little bit, um, since since you're both an artist and a scientist, um, in which ways are those passions like how, how do they serve each other, how are they complementary and how are they uh, desperate, how are they different? Well, you know, when I first started painting about seven years ago, it was my third year into PhD. Um, and you know, getting a PhD is really difficult, it turns out, you know, it took me seven and a half years to do it. Um, and like third year into it, after doing all my coursework and submitting a proposal for research, I feel like I wasn't really making any progress, you know, because science is, can be very, very slow. And um, so I was kind of frustrated and I had this canvas that I stretched on a board and I just kept carrying it from, from place to place when I moved and didn't do anything with it. Um, and I just that, decided to paint on it. Um, and, and I finished the painting and it felt so good. So, and then I just never stopped. So here I am after seven years of painting that after that first painting, I kept painting, you know, I try to paint every day and yeah. being a scientist gave me some flexibilities with my time. So I can paint and I try to paint every day but mostly weekends. So, yes. So in the beginning, I thought they're separate. Um, even though I, I do believe that painting helped me finish my PhD because ah. painting helped me, you know, made me realize that, you know, work is cumulative, you know. Um, when I started painting, when I, when I started a new painting, they look like shit, you know, but I had to believe in myself that I'm going to turn that shit into gold. Painting's yeah. kind of like alchemy like that way. You know, you turn nothing into something really beautiful that you want to look at. Um, and I realized the science is a similar way. You know, in the beginning, I feel like I'm aiming, aimlessly progressing. I don't know what kind of data to put together, pull together to make meaningful um, a, a conclusion out of it. And writing a dissertation, I mean, my dissertation was 300 pages. It was really difficult to write the whole thing. Right. And But writing is same. You know, when you start write something, it's, you know, it's crappy. You know, it doesn't have any thing. And then you just have to work on it. Um, and, and it's cumulative that way. So, yeah. But now I, I think um, there's more connection with arts and science. Yeah. Um, so after I finished my PhD, I got a postdoctoral fellowship at uh, at a place called um, Social Environmental Synthesis Center, SUSINC. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a research center based in University of Maryland. And it's a research center that's founded to promote multidisciplinary research to 
um, address environmental problems, which which are inherently social problems. Right. And they're really complex, and we need multiple scientists to come together um, and and really try to look at the problem in multiple disciplines, not from not just from environmental science perspective, but from social perspective, economic perspective, in order to find a solution that we can apply and, right. and make it make it work. Um, so in that research center, I had you know opportunity to work on that field, but we were given an opportunity, the post, other postdocs and I were given an opportunity to submit a proposal um, for a, a workshop. So two other postdocs docs and I um, wrote a proposal to investigate how environmental art can affect um, our attitude towards environmental problems and ultimately promote conservation behavior. Yeah. We wanted to see if there's a, a structured way to examine how art impacts people. So we wrote this proposal and it was really difficult. At first we were rejected and we, you know, didn't take the rejection and we worked on it some more and we, we submitted it. And after like third try, we finally got the National Science Foundation grant to invite 15 scientists and artists from all, all over the world to, to, to University of Maryland and hold a workshop for three days to just think about art and how art affects people and how art and science can, you know, work together to solve environmental problems. So we had that, we had that workshop and that was a time when art and science just kind of like collided. Cause yeah. before it was like kind of parallel and I was like, I don't know, art is art. I make weird images <laughs> in science, you know, in art, you, you just kind of have to like, use your imagination and make something up where in science it has to be evidence-based so it was yeah. like i thought it was very different but after holding that workshop i realized that these two fields are actually not separate you know i i think what what will make me stand out is is to really take advantage of the fact that I really like both science and art. Yeah. They both give me purpose in life. Um, now let's marry them. And it's like kind of like superpower, right? Yeah, it's absolutely. Like, so yeah, so um, after they worked up, I started really thinking about how, you know, how I'm gonna make mark in the world is by harnessing that intersection between science and art. Um, so I started writing this paper um, I've been writing this paper over a year because, <laughs> so, you know, I have to do this on the weekend. So I, I started writing a paper on the conceptual framework that ties environmental art to quantifiable environmental outcomes by creating this causal link that that identifies relevant social, environmental, and cultural factors that goes into placing and curating and creating environmental art. And then also um, understand the, the, the human aspect of environmental art, audience right. aspect, how they perceive it, and then how that turns into something quantifiable, like whether it's energy consumption reduction or, or changes in some sort of legislation uh, or promotion of green spaces in cities. You know, if, if you change the policy that promotes and, and um, you know, funds the um, urban green spaces, that's big environmental change that's quantifiable. So yeah. I've been writing this paper for a year with 
you know, those, the, the, the participants who came to the workshop, you know, like people in Australia. So we have to have the meeting really late because <laughs> Australia is on the other side of the earth right. where the toilet flush is the other way. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I've been writing this paper and that's really a place um, art and science are now inseparable for me. Um, and I, you know, as a scientist, I see all this environmental degradation and the symptoms of it. I mean, it's so sad to turn on the news because it's the earthquake, it's the wildfire, yeah. drought, flooding, landslide. So that's just, you know, it, those problems seem so insurmountable. But I realized that I can actually do work to contribute to you know, mitigating some of the worst impacts of environmental degradation. And one is to work in the intersection of art and science because art can, has, it's powerful in, in ways the science, sciences are not. You know, right. science can provide practical information that we can use to make um, sound decision, but making the sound decision is not just based on facts alone, we have to get in people's hearts and change people's minds. You know, like addressing the environmental problems are not only on the hands of scientists, but right. it has to involve everybody, right? All 7 billion people on earth have to think about how we are, how we are as a, a species on earth. You know, yeah. if we grade ourselves, we're like the worst house guest. <laughs> it's, <laughs> you're, you're, I think you're, you're, you're really on to something there. And I, I like the thing that you said earlier about the alchemy component. But yeah, it's definitely big. I think like someone can look at the data, look at numbers and have some type of context and like, oh, OK, yeah, that's not good. But having something that may be visual presenting the um the same information but maybe in a different way and showing how they're inextricably connected but maybe mm -hmm. presenting it in a different way can lead to oh wow that really is an issue we really need to sort that or like sometimes uh, what is it i remember how successful and popular like infographics were you'd have mm -hmm. that convergence between two it's like here's the data points here's the, the text that you are going to read but also look at this look at that and that gives that added context that is just it's the aesthetic to it it's the the colorization of it instead of just purely black and white so let, let's let's touch on artistic style um describe your artistic style you you said you said weird or or quirky earlier um you're, to describe your artistic style and what if any movements or artists have influenced you so i i don't i didn't know what my style was and I asked somebody who went to art school and they said it was contemporary surrealism and I was like oh I like that so I, I'll go with that um contemporary surrealism here yeah I mean I really appreciate this opportunity because I, I think about why I paint I'm drawn to it I, I don't know why it's like I have to paint um yeah anyway um so one of the things I think about art and painting is that, like I said, it, it just it it goes in people's emotional center. Mm -hmm. How does that? How does art do that? And I think it's because art has the ability to it fosters our ability to imagine. I think that's what it is. Yeah. And I, I I remember you know I listened to um Aaron Fossil's uh interview with you and she talks about 
Joseph Albert's education about observation, because observation is at the heart of increasing our empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's another link between observation and the uh, building of empathy is the um, it's our ability to imagine. I think you know humans. What differentiates humans from other animals is our extraordinary ability to imagine something out of nothing. Right. I can tell you now, imagine a dog. It's, it's, it's a black dog with red polka dots. Okay. It's got unicorn <laughs> and, and it's got a pair of wings. Bam, it's in your head, I right? I can see it. <laughs> right? Yeah. So we have that extraordinary ability to imagine. And I, I, I remember, you know, listening to Brian Eno's conver- um, conversation on BBC um, lecture on like ecology of culture or something like cool name like that. Um, he, he, Brian Eno talks about that exact thing, our ability to imagine and why that's important. Because he was talking about the, um, he was responding to the British government deciding to put more funding to STEM education and less emphasis on art. And he was arguing why art education is important. Right. Um, and, and he's arguing because we have this, humans have this ability to imagine and we can really foster it and harness it because, because that ability to imagine is at the core of our ability to empathize with other people. because. Mm-hmm. So I used to read like a lot of um, postmodern philosophy. I don't know if I understood anything like, you know, in my 20s, it was cool to read Derrida and Deleuze. Um, but one thing stuck out to me was this thought experiment by Wittgenstein. It's called Beetle in a Box. Mm-hmm. He contemplates that Beetle in a Box, to, to him, it's the world is just a box. It doesn't know that there's world exists outside. And he used that as as a foundation to ask if that's the case, you know, how can we feel pains of other people unless we have the same kind of pain? Right. Right. We can only elaborate from the experiences uh, that we already had. So so that kind of was depressing. And that was my (laughs) 20s. And then now I realize, actually, it's the key to breaking out of the box, so to speak, is our ability to imagine. Because even if we didn't have the pain of other people, we can, if we do our best, we can really imagine what that pain might be and, and finally be able to empathize in, in a truly meaningful way. Sure. And, yeah. and art is, you know, the, is a field that fosters and harnesses our ability to imagine. So that's why art is important. So that's my... I don't know. That's not my style, but like I try to just think of things, you know, imagine things and then kind of visualize it. Yeah. Um, and then I make it into painting. So that's yeah, cause, that's how. Because yeah. I, I read that um, you get inspired by by everything, and I want to know is that true? And it, it, you you described the the dog, the black dog earlier. What, what would be the the strangest thing that's inspired you? That's just like. 
all right, this toast is great. This toast is inspiring. <laughs> what, what's something that comes to mind when you think of something that's a little like really outside of that box? Maybe not the box that the Beatle is in, but something that's outside of that box that's really like inspiring for you. Yeah, yeah. Art is like a little hole that you pull in the box. Yeah. You can kind of look outside. Oh, there's a world outside. There's right. people outside of my world, you know, that have feelings. Um, yeah, I do get inspired by everything. Sometimes I have to like, I have to write down. So I have a notebook and I always kind of write. If I hear something really cool and moving, I write it down so I, I don't forget it. Um, the weirdest thing that I got inspired by is actually the current painting series that I'm making. Um, I was reading a, a New Yorker inter, uh, well, profile of Pippi Lati Rift. She's a visual artist. She has that really famous video of a woman joyfully walking down the street with this huge flower and starts smashing car windows. <laughs> that was Pipilati Rist. Um, so I was reading about her life and her work process. And I learned a lot from reading about other artists and, and you know, oh, this is what other people do. Okay, <laughs> let's, let's see if I can emulate that if I admire that person. Um, and she was describing this work called Blood Clip. Um, from 90s and it's a video of women with menstrual blood like rubbing all of herself um, in the forest and people are really offended by that work at the same time she had another video work called pickle porno which shows a lot of friendly penises and twist twist um, public tv showed it on their you know on their programming and people really loved it so she thought that was really weird it is <laughs> so, yeah and i'm like you know what i'm, I'm gonna try I'm gonna try making paintings of menstrual blood and see if I offend people or, or at least start a conversation. Because yeah. another reason I wanted to paint menstrual blood was I I was taught to be very, very discreet about my womanly functions when I was growing up in Korea. I wasn't even allowed to put like my, my elbow on my on the table because um that would make my elbow look ugly. <laughs> wow. Well, so I was like, you know what? I'm done with being discreet about, you know, my bodily functions. I'm going to put this on the table and, and try to destigmatize yeah. menstrual blood um, because it's part of our lives. It's without it, we won't be able to um, have our society, you know, right. <laughs> so, you know, I wanted to kind of do that and, and and kind of therapy for myself to just print my head that it's it's natural and I'm just gonna be who I am and I have menstrual blood every month. <laughs> so that's, that's the weirdest thing. That's a that's a freeing thing too because it's like yeah. this is what real life looks like. This is what I'm gonna what I'm gonna have. This is gonna be the subject of these pieces and if you want to talk about it, let's talk about it. You know, that's kind of how I look at that. And yeah, people are weird. People are super weird as to what they're offended by and what they're not, or what there is like just conversation about and how they're conversing it. Cause one of the things I think about like with art is it should cause a conversation. It should mm -hmm. offend. It should stick with you. It should stick out. And it's like, yeah. Oh yeah, that piece right there eh, it was bland. I didn't really care about it, but you're going to look at the piece that really strikes you and catches your eye. It's like, what is that about? Well, it happens to be about menstrual blood. Enjoy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and I got a lava lamp. Um, so I got the blue liquid with red wax. Yeah. So I use that as an inspiration to, you know, get an idea of how those liquids move up because I'm yeah. painting the menstrual blood going upwards, kind of yeah. like lava lamp. So that's, so lava lamp is my most recent inspiration for painting. <laughs> I dig it. I dig it. Um, <laughs> so I got two more questions here. Uh, let's talk about creative blocks. Um, mm -hmm. cause I think this could be helpful for other artists that are out there. Cause I think like, for me, like I'm a podcaster and I think I can call myself that because I'm actively doing it, you know, like yeah. I'm working on my craft regularly. You talked about you're, you're painting something every, at least every weekend or, but every, you know, it's something that you're working on. And I, I think like people run into creative blocks and maybe if they associate themselves with their practice, but they're not creating, maybe they feel less associated with it. So in those instances, if any, that you have creative blocks, how do you overcome them? Yeah, I, I'm glad you asked that question because I, I told you how I started painting seven years ago. Yeah. Um, so when I first started college, which was at Montgomery College, it's community college, I um, immigrated to this country when I was 17. So it was a perfect, they provided me a perfect opportunity to understand, you know, what's possible for me. Um, so there I started as studio art major. So I took painting one and two. And I had a wonderful teacher who um, taught me basics of painting. Um, uh, and then I changed my major to civil engineering. And I just stopped painting. About like third year into that block of not painting, after finishing my bachelor's degree, I'm like, all right, I, I, I have this canvas I'm going to paint. And I made a couple of interesting paintings. And then I was talking to a friend and, you know, I was really excited about it. It's really new. And, and, and he's like, well, there's nothing really new. It's everything's already been done. You know, like there's, there's no point. I was like, there's no point. And I just stopped painting. You know, I, I was too focused on the external approval of my work. I was too anxious to have a really nice finished product even before starting, starting the paint. You know, that that really created a block. So I didn't paint for, you know, like 10 years. And then when I started painting um, again, like seven years ago, I started painting because it felt good. You know, yeah. I told you, you know, I just felt good and I never stopped painting because it felt good. I was, I started painting for me. Um, yeah. I, I didn't know why I was painting. That's why I think about why I'm painting. Um, but it just felt good to do it, um, you know, to start something on a blank canvas and you have a finished product. It, it just, and then like you, you, you can see the progress you're making personally. Like yeah. I get better as a painter and that's, that was just really felt good. And I didn't really care what other people thought. Um, yeah. You know, I didn't go to art school, so I didn't have like critique session or anything. I was just paint and I'm like, ah, it's finished. It looks great. And then I just, you know, so now like I don't have creative block because it's just something I look forward to doing. Yeah. Um, I get so much enjoyment out of it. I actually have more ideas than have time to do them. <laughs> I, I guess it's, it's one of those things of like your, your, your purpose and why you're doing it. Like 
you know, and doing this, doing this podcast thing for almost 13 years, it's one of those things where you have had so many different people get interested in the medium and have their takes on how it should be and why are you doing it and all of that. And I find when I get distracted by maybe bringing in someone who might not really fit for what I'm trying to do, I, mm-hmm. I look at it from a creative standpoint, as opposed to this is a avenue to diverse or an avenue to monetize. I don't really care about that. But I think kind of what you touched on, I'm doing it for myself. I'm doing it because yeah. this interests me and like having these conversations, it interests me. I'm able to maybe make friends this way, who knows, but yeah. need to connect with people who are doing good stuff that are in and around Baltimore. That is, that's important to me. And that's like, it's almost going back and what is your purpose? Define your purpose. And once I've found it and really been able to look at that as that guiding principle, when it's like, I'm confused as to why I'm doing something, I go back to that. It's like, are you doing this because it's your purpose or are you doing this for another reason? And if it points back to my purpose, that means I'm doing it right. Yeah. Now I looked at your podcast list and I was like, man, this is, this is going to be a really important historical documentation. You know, you're giving voice to artists. Um, They're doing good things. You're making contribution, you know, I, you know, so I, I I saw this documentary with Muhammad Ali. Oh, he's he's so smart um, and and also handsome. Um, like he says, he's handsome multiple times in the documentary. Um, but anyway, he said that he was asked why he does all this all this work to help other people, you know, try to contribute to society. And he said, you know, doing good is the rent that you pay to exist on on in this world. You know, you have to make your contribution. So I think, you know, you're doing that. You're making contribution because you're capturing important cultural movement that's happening in Baltimore. Um, and, and, and I listened to your podcast. They have, they all have so, such interesting things to say. Um, and you learn something every time you listen to it. I mean, you create human bond that way. You realize yeah. that you're in this continual a continuum of human progress. We're all, you know, trying to be better. Yeah. I, I hope, you know, <laughs> um, and, and you hear from other people doing something inspiring and you want to do step up to that. You know, that's, I think that's important. Yeah. It's, it's big. And I, I find like directly in something a lot, most more often than not indirectly, but on occasion it's very direct where an intentional, where I'll interview someone. And I'm like, you know what? That was a good piece of insight right there. It was like, it's, it's, shame, it's a shameless question of like, yeah, so as a podcaster, how did you do this? <laughs> you know, it's like for me specifically, but I think it, it's something that other people can, can listen to and get something from, whether it be an entrepreneur, whether it be an artist, whether it be someone who's trying to go into either, whether it be just someone who's just interesting what's really happening culturally here in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that's who I'm like trying to reach out to and trying to really get their ears. And as you touched on with your, with art, get their, get their hearts. Mm-hmm. Last question I have. Um, I'll be remiss if I don't ask it. It's the Baltimore question. Tell, tell me about Baltimore. What does Baltimore represent to you? Well, Baltimore is my home. You know, I've been here over a decade. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, I don't have control data to, you know, make uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> a full scientist right this. there. I like but, that. <laughs> but um, I feel like I have a, a, a career in art because 
I started in Baltimore. You know, I started painting and it was okay, but, you know, people kind of welcomed me into their community. Um, and, and, well, and, and a lot of pe- people who are running galleries are also just personal friends that help <laughs> have them over dinner. Um, I remember making this huge dinner for Andrew uh, Liang and, and uh, Mike Benavento at Current because I, I wanted to have a show there because um, it's, you know, I don't know, it's a big gallery. It's got lots of space. And I had them over for dinner. I made them more food than they could actually eat all of it. <laughs> And that's that was that's crazy because those guys have reputation for eating everything, um, but um, yeah, I mean, I started painting and I I was able to show and share with my friends immediately, and and then I just kept painting and having more shows, and now here I am talking to you, <laughs> uh, among many. Maybe you've gone downhill. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> no way. No, this is great. That's that's great. And it, it's great when people really say like, no, this is home. This is, you know, because people have touched on that I've had on this pod will we'll touch on like it's a- accessible and that there's a community here. You're able to really grow and develop creatively. And but when people put that stamp on it, like, no, this is also home. It's not just mm-hmm. a place I'm going to be at for a couple of years and see if I can take this to another place. It's like, no, this is home. And that's important because it's going to sound corny and I roll my eyes when I say it, but home is where the heart is. And that's that's so corny, (laughs) but, but yeah, but it's, it's, it's true though. And I think, um, that's, that's what, what you touched on there. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely home. Like, you know, after I finished my PC, most people move to different cities, you know, new jobs. I kept like finding jobs around here. That's why I worked at the scene because it was in Annapolis. Now I work at U.S. Geological Survey and I'm working remotely, but it's, it's in, you know, rest in Virginia. So I kept finding jobs so I can stay here because my friends are here. You know? Yeah. Well, um, that's all I had in terms of questions, but um, I'll give you the, the floor to plug. Where can people find you online? Plug away, website, all of that good stuff. Please, please share it, share it. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, I am planning on your show. Uh, things are in motion. Uh, I have nine paintings of places, you know, depicting the places where humans extract natural resources. Mm-hmm. Humans have this, you know, ability to really transform landscape in ways that affects our 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 weather system you know uh, just and 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 have such a destructive power in um, ecological system so i made paintings of those you know to start conversation Mm -hmm. about what it means um that we're changing this landscape um and and also i'm working with multiple other Baltimore friends who are metal workers, seamstresses, uh, sound um, archivists to create this sculptural piece that takes elements from my paintings in a three-dimensional physical space. Um, It's kind of like a a sound booth that people can walk into and hear the sound of cicadas. Um, (laughs) So so that's going to be a show you know, maybe sometime early next year um, or late this year. Uh, so that will be my next show. It's going to be called Extraction. And I'm going to invite my scientist friends so we can talk 
to other people about the work that we do. Because we do, you know, a lot of us are doing a lot of interesting work. I have a friend who is actually studying social media data to see how um, people's behavior change with, with, um, with you know, observing birds uh, by tracking the bird up, bird track, uh, uh, bird app track, tracking. Um, so that's really cool. So yeah, yeah. I, I'm gonna invite all my scientist friends to come and mingle with my artist friends, and we can just kind of have a conversation because I think in order to solve this global environmental problem, we need a strong coalition between scientists and artists. We have yes. to work together because it's a problem that's just too big to to you know put it on shoulders of a certain segment of society. Everybody needs to get on board. So that's my next show. And it, and it definitely speaks on that, that that thing that you've talked about multiple times that that intersection between science and art. So yes, that's great. Bring mm-hmm. bring everyone together. Um, and real quick, uh, tell people your website so they can check out check out and stay up to date on all things you. <laughs> Uh, oh yeah, my website. I'm sorry, I'm not really good at promoting my stuff. Um, and so my website is sejongi.com. It's S E J O N G E E dot com. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, remind her to plug. <laughs> <laughs> I was saying it in the middle. Like, am I am I giving them my right thing? Yeah, that is it. That is it. <laughs> and that's also your your Instagram handle as well. Yeah. Um, so folks, check yeah, out. Check that's out, my check branding. Out. Yeah. See, see, right there. See, who said you didn't know how to plug yourself? <laughs> what are you saying? I'm savvy. Very. Uh, so that's that's all that's all I have today. So thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Thank you so much. I it's been so much fun talking with you. Thanks. So for uh, Sejong Cho, I am Rob Lee. Sandy, there's art in and around Baltimore. You just have to look for it.